one-page memo to the right person that captures the relevant issues crisply, that gives them a clear decision and the potential outcomes delivered to that person. They read it in 60 seconds and then five to 10 minutes of back and forth, like some of the biggest decisions in the world happen that way. The point is you want to be able to think very quickly. You want to be able to evaluate what's happening very quickly. And then you want to adapt your behavior to the events that you observe. And so at the core of that is training oneself to not ignore what's happening in front of you. And I think this is like one of the key, one of the key skills of really anyone in the world, which is understand, you know, do not avert your eyes, as Werner Herzog says. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm speaking with Josh Steinman, of the former director of cyber at the National Security Council and the co-founder and CEO of Galvanic, an industrial cybersecurity company. And Josh will explain what that means in detail in the actual podcast. We discuss urbit, industrial systems, cybersecurity, talent, John Boyd, effective communication, continuous learning, and the future of conservatism. All of these things are very important to me, and you would be surprised to see a relatively short episode. But I think one of the things that Josh makes extremely clear, both in what he says and how he says it, is the effectiveness of communicating straightforwardly, directly, and I think you can see all of that in great display in his answers. I think about this often, of the best way to communicate really complex and technical ideas, and this does feel like one of those episodes, once again, that I'm going to be revisiting time and time again. As always, the best way to help the show is to let a friend know. If you enjoy the episode, then hopefully not only are you helping the podcast grow, but you're also helping your friend find something that they enjoy, that is informative, so you're helping the both of us. And without further ado, here's Josh Steinman. So I heard you mention that you were an early user of Urbit. What was that like? <laughs> well, I was working at the White House at the time, and I guess by definition, I was the senior cyber policymaker in the United States government. And, um, you know, I, I've for... God, since I was a kid, I just loved playing with new technologies. I got a computer. My grandparents got me a computer, I think, when I was like 10. Um, and so, you know, I'm always like tr skimming around like Hacker News. And I can't remember where I heard about Urbit. But I was like, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll give this a shot. Like distributed architectures, um, you know, immutable compute. Like, yeah, this sounds amazing. And so... I go and I start to set it all up and I realize that, you know, you have to go back to the command line to install this first version of Urbit. And it took me like, I don't know, it was probably less time than I thought, maybe like two hours on a weekend. And um, it was the most technical thing that I had done in years. And I felt an extreme amount of satisfaction when I was finally able to get it up and running um, and uh, played around with it for like an hour. And then Honestly, I just really didn't have time to be using it when I was in that job. And 
and stopped. Right, that's understandable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, wait, so this would have been, you were in the White House. What year was this? Oh, God. I mean, it was, I mean, it was sometime between 2017 and 2021. It was, it was early. So, I don't know, maybe 2018 or something like that. 2017, 2018. I don't know. Right, why. time flies. When, yeah, I can't remember yeah. when it actually first came out, but yeah. Understandable, honestly. Yes. I mean, I'm not sure if you you've caught up with this, but uh, d- does Urbit not require the command line now? Is it just you know? Is it a clean? Is it a clean uh, graphic interface? Oh yes. man, really? Yeah, they've they've come out with a bunch of. I think at least one client. I tried running one of the clients several years ago and um, had some luck with it, but it just I didn't have time. So I think there are clients now that that enable you to have a very smooth onboarding. Huh, that's great. Yeah. So there's three there's, there's three areas that I want to cover here. Uh, one is what you're doing with Galvanic. I, I should say, actually, uh, for my audience, it was just fascinating uh, doing the research for this episode. I think one of the most fun times I've had doing uh, a prep for an episode for, in a while. But yeah, three areas, uh, what you're doing at Galvanic, your experience in the Trump NSC, and uh, something maybe more specific to this show, which is the future of machine learning and cybersecurity. Yeah. But uh, yeah, if you're happy to, let's dive right into uh, what you're doing in, at Galvanic. Yeah. Uh, let me know if I'm pronouncing that wrong, by the no, way. No, that's actually correct. And a lot of people do other pronunciations that are incorrect. And, you know, I was, I was, I was bred a certain way, so I don't correct them. But uh, hopefully they'll listen to this podcast and they'll, and they'll know how to do it correctly. That's great. That's great. So this is a term that I've, that I've only really ever seen you guys use, which is uh, industrial cybersecurity. What is industrial cybersecurity? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people like to use industrial as a preposition, meaning hardy or perhaps tested or intense. And that's not how we're using it here. Here we actually mean cybersecurity for industry. And what do I mean by that? Of the past 30 years, we have integrated digital systems into most of what exists in the industrial world. And that can be you know, the power grid, the water system, uh, cars, right, which used to be entirely mechanical and now are deeply integrated with digital systems and subsystems all the way up to manufacturing and then consumer goods, right? Like a, you, you can't buy a lock. You can't go into a store to buy a lock for your house these days without essentially having to make a coin flip choice about whether or not you want this thing to be connected to the internet. And so I, I would put all of that stuff in this category of, um, you know, things that used to be uh, very simple and now have become very complex. And the problem with complex things is that, you know, there are edge cases, there are vulnerabilities, there are all these types of things that, that happen when you have complexity. So when we talk about industrial cybersecurity, it's the fact that facilities, architectures, entire complex systems that used to be mechanical now are digital and they come with all of the attendant and emergent vulnerabilities. And so when we say industrial cybersecurity, what we're really talking about is the fact that 
essentially all of the things that maintain our Western way of living have very quietly uh, been integrated to the internet or to digital systems and now have these vulnerabilities and we need to protect those systems now against those vulnerabilities. And so there's a there's a trade-off that we got, right? We we did these things because they were useful, they created higher degrees of efficiency, and now the bill is coming due, right? There's another side of that transaction, there's vulnerability. And so we've started this company because we're trying to help buy down the risks that are now quite evident about those choices that we made decades ago. Right. So this is something that, yeah, so this is something that already happened. We've already integrated these industrial systems with the internet, uh, or at least with some kind of, um, with some kind of digital system. And so, so the vulnerabilities are already there and we're kind of going, or your company is going and kind of retroactively patching them. Am I getting that right? I'd say patching is um, not the right framework to use. There are companies that go around and find vulnerabilities or you know hardware that hasn't been patched. You know what we're doing is taking a data science approach to this problem, and we're looking at all the activity that's happening across an industrial network, from the endpoints themselves, the actual robot arms and CNC machines. Uh, from from those pieces of equipment to the networking gear that moves data around those industrial enterprises, all the way back to the applications that are being used in the front office to control all that stuff. We take all that data and more, and we look at it, and we correlate it together, and we look for anomalous behavior or things that that are anomalies. And so that, that doesn't have to be a signature of a malicious actor, meaning like you see an executable that you know some bad guy has used. It can just mean odd things that are happening that shouldn't be happening. And we raise those to the attention of the people that own those facilities. Right. So so this data science approach, do you have a large sample of past events, past attacks that have already, that have already happened? Um. There are a bunch of frameworks that people use when they think about this stuff. MITRE, you know, the famous MITRE attack framework. There's there's one for industrial systems as well. But at the same time, industrial environments can be very unique. And so the approach that we're taking very much has to do with looking at what's happening across all of these various places and trying to be able to discern abnormal behavior really from zero. And so insofar as we're thinking about the various attack topologies that may occur, you know, when you have a malicious actor on an endpoint. We're also just looking to understand how should the system be operating? How should data be moving across it? And then how is data moving across it and looking for that delta? Right. So something that's really, that really was surprising to me, maybe shouldn't have been so surprising to me, is uh, your interest in uh, John Boyd. So, I mean, in tech circles, maybe more familiar to this uh, this uh, show's uh, audience, you know, he's more well known for uh, the OODA loop for basically his applications and startups. I'm sure you've, uh, you're very knowledgeable about that too. But 
tell me about how that framework kind of integrates into how how you think about uh, Galvanic. Yeah, Boyd's general philosophy and and body of work has to do with what I would call extreme empathy for the user mm. in terms of startup vision. And, you know, when he was a fighter pilot, the empathy was for the pilot, right? The empathy is right. like, this person needs to live. Uh, they need to be victorious. And so in the absence of all tradition and uh, in the absence of all uh, doctrine, what is the most efficient pathway to the kill, right? To the air-to-air -air kill. And can you create systems that enable you to get there very quickly? Um, and what types of styles of thinking can lead you to that? And then as Boyd gets older and more mature, he thinks more about these types of things and creates certain ways of thinking around them. And so a lot of people know about this, this OODA loop that he right. came up with, but really it describes a way of thinking that enables a human being to near constantly be evaluating the situation uh, and then adapting their thoughts and actions to the immediate reality that presents itself and understanding how to then get to desired outcomes very quickly and to best the opponent in, in the optimal and the quickest way. And so this type of thinking has affected many of the undertakings that I've had in my life. Um, and I'm certainly not old, but I'm not young. And I had experiences with this dealing with insurgents in Iraq. I had experience dealing with technology companies when I was in the Department of Defense. And then when I went to the startup world, and then when I was in government, and now that I'm the co-founder of a company. So the point is you want to be able to think very quickly. You want to be able to evaluate what's happening very quickly. And then you want to adapt your behavior to the events that you observe. And so at the core of that is training oneself to not ignore what's happening in front of you. And I think this is like one of the key, one of the key skills of really anyone in the world, which is Understand, you know, do not avert your eyes, as Werner Herzog says. See what is coming at you. Right. That's that's fascinating because you think that that would be obvious, right? You know, you should look at what's in front of you. W what are some examples of people not doing that? I think most people don't do that. Hmm, interesting. I think most people ignore reality. I mean, the mind, I've said this in other places, but the mind is a tool for ignoring. Right? Human, the human brain exists to filter out information. And I just think that, you know, human cognition today is essentially at the apex of development of that skill. And because of modernity, most human beings are able to ignore significant parts of reality and still survive and procreate which is right. your, like your major barrier, right? Like that's what, that's what the human vessel is designed to do is, is procreate. 
And so I, I think most people ignore reality, or at least they ignore aspects of reality, and they're never actually confronted with, um, with moments where they must contend with that. Uh, they, they just are able to sort of continue to exist. And so I've, throughout my life, tried to put myself in scenarios where I have been forced to directly contend with reality. And it's not always the case, but sometimes it's the case that I'm able to get there. And the point is, you want to get to a place where your decisions will directly engage with the facts and then the feedback that you get, you can actually use to make a judgment around like what actually exists. In the startup world, it's like, do people actually want this? Does it actually solve the problem? Um, because most, most don't, right? Like people, people, why do people go on Instagram? Hmm. I mean, my, my instinct is to get attention, right? That that's, that's the first, that's the first order impression that I get. And why do they, we could pull the thread on this. So, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Why do they want attention? Hmm. So. Right. Well, one is the kind of biological mechanism, right? They want attention because it's, you know, it's uh, tugs on the limbic system. They see Another productivity. Is, yeah. Biological right, right. or economic productivity. And yet, I think we would all say that most people that spend time on Instagram do not actually become more productive. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So why are they on Instagram? Right. As a kind of distraction. Is that? Yeah. It's like the neurons are firing. They're making them think they're simulacral of productivity, right? They think that they're getting these things that are going to lead them to an outcome. And in fact, it never comes. Right. So you have all these. Yeah. Yeah. This is fascinating. So you have this world that's kind of set up to give the, give the approximation of, of paying attention to something, to seeing what's in front of you. And you actually don't don't get to doing that at any given point in time. Yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't mm. deliver. It doesn't actually do what it tells you it's going to do. What what it what it tries to communicate. Right, and right. This is so fascinating. So so let let's kind of try to ground this. So you you see this a lot in uh, in industrial systems and cybersecurity as well. I see it a lot in the business world, right? Where people make buying decisions because of some first order approximation of what they're looking to do, right? And so, you know, they want to keep their jobs and they want to look as if they're solving a problem. They want to be seen to be proactive. And they make those decisions based on that motivation or synthetically that motivation. And then the question is, well, so they have that intention and they take an action and then does it produce the result? And the answer is sometimes. So the point is, how can you build something that actually delivers on that result? Because I think that is sort of tapping into the live wire. And that's certainly what we're aiming to do. 
Right, right. You you see a lot of this in the SaaS world, right? People will will buy, you know, like software tools that are not actually useful, but are, you know, some kind of signal that they're that they're kind of working on their, you know, niche niche area in the company. Have um, you ever heard of the company ClickUp? ClickUp. Maybe vaguely. I I, I wouldn't know what it does. I've never heard of the company. I'd never heard of the company. I'd never experienced the company. And then one day about three years ago, it was everywhere. You know, maybe they raised some Series C at an ungodly rate and uh, had $50 million to spend on advertising. But but the advertising was very clearly aimed in this type of, of vein. Become more productive, you know? Right, right. Uh, yeah, it's some panacea that gets offered. And yet again, I'd never, I'd never heard of that application. Maybe it does make people more productive. Kind of seemed like some kind of, uh, you know, Jira competitor or something like that. Jira plus Slack plus who knows what. But the whole point okay. is, you know, much like a lot of modern advertising, it's selling a promise. It's selling some ideal, and the, I have no idea if it is able to deliver on that or not. But closing that gap, I think, is there is the responsibility of a good or a great founder and CEO. Right. So I think you mentioned, uh, we can cut this out. We can cut this out if you don't want me to uh, talk about this. I, I think we mentioned that you were releasing, uh, that uh, uh, Galvanic was releasing its V1 uh, very soon, right? In a week? Yeah, it should be around there. We're Basically, we're feature complete, and um, at this point, we're just in some pretty rigorous testing before we deploy. So it'll be next week, maybe like you know, five days, seven days, something like that. And, right, and then yeah, it'll be out. That's thrilling. Yeah, it should be out by the time uh, by the time uh, this episode releases. Yeah. But right, so so what is what is that going to look like? What's the experience like? Right. Yeah, I'm. You know, look, it's uh, it's a da- it's a dashboard. <laughs> uh, it, it gives you it gives you perspective on everything that's happening inside your industrial network, and gives you a status update as we on the back end comb through all of these events that are happening. You know, hundreds, thousands, millions of events that are happening, correlating them all together, and then surfacing the ones that we think are actually concerning and not surfacing the rest. So. I don't want to go too much into it, uh, but that's the generic thing that you get. Our our thinking here is that most people don't understand how to protect their industrial systems against cyber attacks. They don't have the manpower. You know, they're not hiring people to do it. It's very expensive to do that. And so, what we're trying to do is give them like a single place where, as they start to have this concern, instead of going out and trying to cobble together a solution. They can just come to us. We'll be able to install the system. And then that's the one place that they can go to understand what's happening. Right. Uh, I want to use this as a kind of in-route because I don't think you know most people know a lot about this problem. I, I don't know that much about this problem other than really uh, hearing you talk or write about it. But what is, what is the state of monitoring in kind of current industrial systems right now? Like how much of a how much of a factory does the factory owner or manager really kind of how how much of it are they keeping their eye on? Almost 
from a digital perspective, almost none. From a physical perspective, obviously, factories get observed because people operate them. Right. <laughs> it's very it's very hard. Most industrial equipment is unmonitored. And then there's a small percentage of companies that take a look at the network traffic that moves in and around those networks. Um, and some of those companies uh, that are using those tools have people that look at them. Uh, but it's really an emergent problem where I think it's compounding and I've certainly seen it compound or grow arithmetically, I guess we could say. And the point is that I think over the next five years, we're going to see an explosion of these types of events. In fact, you, a lot of them are coming out into the press over the past two, three, and four years. You know, prominently, we've had back in 2017 attacks that caused billions of dollars at disparate types of industrial facilities like drug manufacturing factories or chocolate factories, oil facilities, meat packing plants, uh, car manufacturing facilities, et cetera. Uh, cream right. cheese manufacturers. So this stuff's <laughs> happening. It's happening at an increasing rate. Um, yeah, it's happening. Right. So 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 right now, I mean, I, I'm a bit surprised by this, but I'm I, I'm not sure how surprised I should be that there is basically no kind of no centralized oversight of all of the digital processes here. So they just like went and hooked it up to the internet, you know, and basically, you know. Job's done. Not gonna, not gonna really look at it anymore. That is approximately correct. Oh man, yeah. We need your company even more then, right? Yeah. Huh. I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure how how thoroughly I would I, I would expect I I would expect something like this. Maybe I would kind of directionally expect something like this, but I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't you know, expect it to go this far. So, so what do you think that decision looks like, right? What do you think the decision looks like to kind of collect, connect, sorry, uh, to connect these industrial policies uh, to a digital endpoint or to an online endpoint? And, uh, and like, what does it look like for someone to get approval for that? And then what does it look like for, say, someone to get approval to uh, contract with your company? So probably the most important thing to note here is that you know the world is often orders of magnitude more complex than we think right and so when i think about this i i can absolutely see why these decisions were made right like someone reads an article in a trade publication that says you know cheesemakers monthly right trade publication i don't know if it exists or not but let's just theoretically imagine that, that it does exist. Let's imagine it exists. And I'm reading Cheesemakers Monthly and it's 1997. And there's a fancy article about um, a new piece of equipment used by people making cheese. Uh, and, you know, robotic arm that churns the, churns the butter or what have you. And it allows one person to churn 10 times the amount of butter into cheese that was previously possible. And it's, you know, use the robots, this, that, or the other, control it from your desk. 
et cetera. And those decisions would roll up to a chief operating officer, a chief revenue officer, or just, you know, the owner of the company who's like, wow, productivity gains. Yep. Let's do it. You know, prices are going up, uh, labor prices, equipment prices, raw material prices. And this is a way in which I can, I can help, you know, keep my business open. And I think a bunch of those decisions got made. I think that's how most of these decisions get made. On the security side, these decisions do not often go up the same path, right? So a chief information officer, a chief information security officer, you know, maybe they'll report in to, well, the CIO could report to the CEO, but maybe they report to like a chief legal officer or compliance or risk or something like that. And they're cost centers. And so even when the COO has made this decision to go out and electrify, we could call it, right, digitize these physical processes, in many cases, they don't reach out to the other side, to the security side and say, okay, we're going to do this. How can we do it in a, in a way that buys down risk? So often those decision makers don't ever really talk about these types of things until after the decision's been made and after the equipment has been purchased and installed. Oh, man. Okay. So, right. So you're in the scenario where all these vulnerabilities are are kind of being imported or being, or in some cases, more than just, you know, more than just metaphorically being imported, right? Um, and... Right. So, so, so this seems, this seems, you know, like a catastrophe waiting to happen, right? Like why, why is, I guess my instinct is like, why is the incidence of, uh, of cybersecurity attacks so low in that case? I, I don't actually think it's as low as we think it is. I think that in many cases, these incidents end up getting handled within the envelope of attorney-client privilege, at least for public Mm. companies, uh, because they don't want news of these things to spread and affect the stock price or investor confidence or what have you. And so, yeah, sort of creates a misalignment of incentives. Right. That's fair. So you spoke earlier to something that I think I've discovered more recently as well, which is something I call like the shallowness of expert networks, right? That once you really start digging into an area or say the intersection of two or three areas, let's say cybersecurity and industrial systems, right? Yeah. You find out that there's just not a lot of people there. There's just not a lot of people, you know, either competing or working on it or to collaborate with at all. Absolutely. Yeah. and. I mean, that's that's a fascinating area to explore in and of itself, right? Because you've been you've been building this company, you've been essentially trying to solve that problem. So I guess the the line into this is like, how how have you been trying to solve the kind of uh, shallowness of personnel networks problem? Right. How, How have you or let's say just like recruiting or specialized recruiting? How have you been finding people? Yeah, it's really hard. And. When I was at the White House, I asked a bunch of our researchers, 
the White House has a library, and those people interact regularly with the Library of Congress and with libraries all across the United States. I asked them how many people in America could be described as industrial cybersecurity specialists, and the answer that came back was something in the order of less than 10,000. And it's just because it's really hard to get people to learn three highly remunerative overlapping skill sets, right? Cybersecurity, if you become a security professional, you'll always have good work. And then the intersection of that mech E and double E, you know, world, like understanding how industrial equipment works from a mechanical perspective. And then again, from the sort of electrical digital perspective. And each one of those skill sets gets you really good jobs. Right. So finding people that know one of them, easy. Two of them, hard, not impossible. Three of them, it's insane. Um, and then, you know, the, the joke is that once you find people that have all three of those skill sets, most of them don't want to live in dense urban areas. In fact, many of them, many of them move to uh, rural areas where they have direct control over many of the things that... Uh, you know, oh, I see. They're aware of the dangers so yeah. they kind of isolate. Yeah. yeah. So the, the number of people that I talk to who, um, you know, live in like the Blue Ridge Mountains or, you know, the, the High Sierras or, or what have you, it's not insignificant. And so getting folks that are willing to come to either L.A. or Seattle and then, um, you know, have that skill set, it's, it's a challenge. We've been able to find it but it's a challenge. Right. This is something that I was leading into. I'm glad you mentioned it. So at the NSC, you had a similar problem, right? You were head of cyber at NSC. You were looking into similar issues. What's, what was the recruiting process there like? I think you mentioned a little bit, but go, go deeper on that. Yeah. Uh, I'd say that the National Security Council in the federal government is one of the preeminent positions that one can hold is being a staffer on the NSC, if only because most decisions of strategic importance end up flowing through the National Security Council. Some don't, and you could say, oh, being a leader at DARPA or being a um, you know a senior diplomat uh, in the State Department, being a Charge d'affaires, as they say in French, or a, a senior, you know, like the person that runs a diplomatic outstation, uh, a, an ambassador is one example, or being a lab director at a uh, at a federal lab or something like that. These are sort of crowning uh, career achievements. But one of those is also being a director or even a senior director on the National Security Council because you end up being the traffic cop for nearly everything that's happening in your remit. Um, there are some exceptions, but the point is everyone wants to work at the NSC. And there's upsides and downsides to that. The upside is that you know you get a lot of people that want to work for you. The downside is many of them want to work for you because of uh, who you are, not because of what you're doing. And this comes back to Boyd, and I've mentioned this in other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it comes back to Boyd, and there's this. I'm not sure if it's apocryphal or not. I've had most of my Boyd, 
mentors and associates have told one version of this story or another. It's recounted in many of the books written about him. But, you know, he often would give this speech to junior officers saying that at some point in your career, you're going to have to make a choice. Do you want to be somebody or do you want to do something? Because you can't do both. And so almost everyone in the federal government, you know, or at least people in Washington, they want to come work at the National Security Council, but it's because it is the National Security Council. They want to be an NSC staffer. And I wouldn't want to discount those people morally, right? I'm, I'm, I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're nice folks, but the whole point of being a White House staffer is you, you exist to further the agenda of the president of the United States within your remit. And so I always looked for and exclusively hired people that brought me solutions to problems that matched up with the president's priorities. And that it was very easy to filter for. You know, people would come to me and say, I want to come work for you. And I would just shoot them off a very quick email saying like, okay, what problems do you want to solve? And very often people would respond back and say, well, I want to make the country more secure from cyber attacks. And I'd say, that's lovely, but you got to tell me more. And it, it sharpens the mind. It sharpens the hiring process. And what it exposes is that most people do not understand how things happen in the world. And it goes back to this ability to observe reality. And I harp on this both directly and indirectly on Twitter a lot, where people will call out a problem and I will say, well, tell me about how that problem is composed, right? Like everything, Steve Jobs has this line of like, everything you see in the world is made by, or most things that you see in the world are made by man right? The pen that I'm holding, the computer in front of me, the microphone I'm speaking into, the application that we're using in order to have this conversation was just made by people. So break that down. Tell me how it works. People say like, oh, we'll never, we'll never um, be able to refine raw materials in the United States. I say, why? You know, maybe we can't now, or maybe there's a problem now, but like there are regulations that are that, that are layered together within the assumptions that you're making when you say never. And if you can break those things apart, you can actually understand that there is simply an order of operation to overcoming the challenges that you are, you know, so, so, um, you know, blithely referring to. And so the right. point is that as, as you drill down, people come come to me and they would say, I want to work for you. I want to do X. I want to do Y. I want to do Z. I would send them away and I'd say, come back when you have a solution to a problem. And if I think that your problem is important enough, and if I think that the solution that you've brought me is a way that could actually work, then we'll talk. I did this very successfully. People came to me with a whole bunch of problems, cybersecurity for space assets, cybersecurity for maritime assets, cyber operations policy. Uh, I could go down the list of things that we did. Uh, ransomware, 
malicious cyber activity affecting U.S. companies. You just go down this list. And I had people ultimately, and I think it, by the end, people realized that I was going to ask them to work. <laughs> and so you'd have some people come out of the woodwork when they had ideas, or I would go find very talented people and I would just pick their brain. I'd be like, how do you think we could solve this problem and force them to go through the exercise? And if I found them to be able to go through the exercise and come up with a plan, I would say, well, would you like to execute that plan on behalf of the president of the United States? And so that's sort of how I went about hiring people. It's also how I went about managing them. Um, I had this strategy I called management by index card with these big, fat, thick, tall index cards that we would get at the White House. They'd say National Security Council at the top. Super cool. Um, and in handwriting, my own handwriting, I would write out for every person that worked for me the anywhere from three to 10 things that I expected them to do over a one or two year tour of duty at the National Security Council in like very brief language. This was also part of the hiring process. If I can't capture what you're working on on, a, on an index card, like then obviously neither of us understand specifically what you're going to do and the interim steps it's going to take to get there, right? Like brevity and clarity you know, are reflections of a knowledge of reality. And so I'd have an index card for every person that worked for me. And at our weekly check-ins, I just pull out the index card. Maybe there's 50 words written on it, right? Like five tasks. Where are we on task one, right? Goal number one, where are we on task two? And that was how I managed, you know, from any given time, anywhere from four to 12 people. Right. So it's, okay. So this team was four to 12. Okay. So, so you must've had, you know, like a huge, huge backlog of people, you know, waiting to, waiting to pitch their projects as well. Right. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it's, I tend to think that in most areas of human endeavor, there's just a very small number of people that are proactive and so at any given time, I was thinking about three to five people that might join the team. And oh man, that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I mean, again, that doesn't, that's not the people that wanted to. It was the people that I thought were, were physically capable, right? Had gone through or were going through the mental exercise of figuring out how to solve very complex problems. And then I assessed, had the wherewithal and the will to follow through. Right. So, yeah, this is, I think, like, the big question when it comes to these kind of um, either, uh, you know, very central, these, like, very centralizing agencies is, there. there's the question... There's a question of like what Scott Alexander calls like mistake theory versus conflict theory, right? If it, are things just not getting done because basically like people can't, people without the right incentives or without the right um, resources, they're just not able to get get stuff done, or if if they're being like obstructive in some way, right? If they're being intentionally, you know, if they're going out of their way to drag their feet. So 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 from this, so from your experience, uh, it's both. To, Okay, interesting. So, so I think we've uh, gone over the kind of uh, mistake theory of it. People don't have a plan. They don't have 
Uh, I think you said on another interview that you you always want to have a single point of uh, responsibility or a single point of accountability, right? Uh, so so let's cover the yeah. let's cover the conflict theory version of it. What's the what's the version where people are dragging their feet? Oh, I'd say that you know that comment that I made a few minutes ago about things being orders of magnitude more complex than the human brain often wants to admit that they are. I think most of these problems are actually both, right? It's mm. that as you break apart the why, you find places where um, there have been mistake theory uh, types of interactions. And then as you try and rectify those, you come across, what was the second one? Mistake uh, theory. Conflict theory. Yeah. You come across conflict theory style roadblocks. And I'm sure, you know, there'd be the inverse as well. Um, so I'm trying to think of things that I can, of things that were unclassified, where this would be an example. Um, yeah, take your time. Yeah. And if you need to cut stuff afterwards, you know, like, just let me know. No, no, it's fine. I'm, I'm a pro dancer at this point, as we say. Mm. Um. Let's take one that is well-known and very public, and uh, this would be the cybersecurity um, stuff around power grids. NERC, North American Electric Reliability Corporation, NERC, has uh, this program called SIP, the Critical Infrastructure Protections Standards. So this is the NERC, um, the, the set of standards that uh, NERC, which is under the um, FERC, right? The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, right? So FERC, te- I'm pretty sure it's like FERC tells NERC, <laughs> uh, it's like a Dr. Seuss book, FERC tells yeah. NERC. Um, uh, to come up with standards and then promulgate them across the, the, the energy grid, the companies that run the energy grid. And so one of the, one of the challenges here is that you've got a bunch of different organizations that are talking about how should we, how should we create cybersecurity standards, right? So in terms of your two Scott Alexander methodologies for systemic failure, Um, they almost intertwine across these types of dynamics. So for example, SIP right now, there's this big conflict over whether or not energy companies can use cloud in various aspects of their network. And uh, although I'm not up to date on the sort of minute to minute differences on this, to the best of my recollection, and I may get tore up in the comments on this, um, it is up to the individual auditors who are going to the specific energy facilities right now to make a decision about whether or not their utilization of cloud is up to the standard of what is expected under SIP, the Critical Infrastructure Protection Standards of NERC. And so you could see how this would be... Um, reflective of both of those types of failure modes, right? Maybe there are 
are individuals that have their own perspective on how, you know, cloud should or should not get deployed at the at the inspector level. Maybe there are policymakers who believe that we shouldn't connect anything to the cloud, um, which I think, you know, there's 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 reasonable arguments to be made there. There are other professionals that think that, you know, the risks involved in having things that are kind of connected to the internet, but not really, um, and people patching or not patching, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and because of all these things, like it's just better, like clouds, you know, good cloud uh, is just better, right? Like being on AWS is better than running your own data center because who knows if you're patching all your stuff inside your data center, but at least AWS is always going to be to some degree always patched or at least responsive to vulnerabilities that may come out. So the point is, is that in many of these situations, both of those failure modes are present. And the whole point right. is, and this happens as an NSC staffer, like, are you willing to try and keep all this in your mind, to interact with people in good faith, but to continue to drive towards an outcome that is, in your judgment, ultimately going to buy down risk? And that, I think, is sort of the, the, the key personality trait, right, of, of what a good NSC staffer is able to do. Right, right. So I think you mentioned something very important here, which is kind of keeping that kind of keeping that happy face, right? Like keeping that like if you're if you're interacting with someone and you're, and you're trying to see, uh, sift through, you know, mistake theory versus conflict theory, you know, is this person lying to me, right? Or is this per uh, and or is this person, you know, just not really capable of keeping up to uh, his or her plan, like there's to me like there's a version of this okay so so i'll kind of speak from uh people i know that there's a version of this in the startup world where uh, a founder becomes just like paranoid right just just becomes like default suspicious of everyone everyone he meets and is like clear evidently so right uh you know you you go into the job interview and he's like you you know, just just like clearly, clearly suspicious of you, wondering if um, everything, every single sentence you say is you know actually true or not. Yeah, and um, you know, quite quite frankly, it's it's quite unsettling, right? It's uh, it's it's a bit scary. Um, do you think so? So there's obviously like a trade off here where you want to present you want to present yourself as maybe more understanding more forgiving but at the end of the day you want to make sure the job gets done right Mm -hmm. so so do you have any advice on how to handle that trade-off yeah yeah honestly this is one of the biggest challenges that has bridged these two worlds and frankly i had it as well when i was a military officer doing complicated things in complicated places and there was actually a senior enlisted Air Force uh, NCO, not non commissioned officer, E nine, so the highest rank, who uh, I got to know as she was getting out of the service at the tail end of my service, and she had this great phrase that I've I've always attributed to her, but has really gone to the core of, of what I believe, which is always presume noble intent. And so I just tell people that, 
I had like a bunch of these rules that I ended up writing down on some of those index cards. And this is one of the more important ones, which is that you got to presume that people are trying to do the right thing. And, you know, there are people that are trying to not do the right thing or do other things. And that can become clear over time, but it is just much easier to presume noble intent. And I think that a lot of what is going on in those types of scenarios, and I've faced that myself, my early military training was designed to make me very paranoid. I'll just leave it at that. And so, you know, what you have to do is sort of calm that, that part of the mind that Mm. is very, you know, it's on edge that's on the lookout for it and try and be very methodical. Like, why am I suspicious of something happening? Like, what am I really concerned about? And it's not, it's hard to do when you're in the white house. It's a very, you know, stressful place, lots of big personalities, you know, there's a lot at stake. Um, and so what I would tell my team is that my expectation was in order to presume noble intent, that whenever they had something that could turn into a conflict with someone else, that my expectation was they were going to take a personal meeting with them and go see them face to face and talk it out. And if that was impossible, then do a video conference with them. If that was impossible, a phone call and only the last resort were they to send an email or leave a voicemail message. Because in 90% of the cases, in 90, right? Like 10%, there was a challenge. But in most of the cases, it was just human misperception and miscommunication. And I think that that holds in, uh, in startup world as well. Uh, it holds in small teams, it holds in big teams, but I think it's one of the biggest skills that you can develop is even if you want to maintain that level of paranoia, you have to identify it. You have to sort of put it in a place, open your mind up to the other possibilities, go explore, and then and then give it equal weight. Give that place equal weight with the other possibilities as you try and get to the bottom of what's actually going on here. Right. So let's talk a bit deeper about how the NSC kind of sets uh, policy or sets goals. So I, I think in your, yeah, this was in the, your review of the 20, 2023 National Cybersecurity uh, Strategy. Uh, you mentioned that they kept a lot of things that are kind of bipartisan or kept stuff from your, uh, your tenure there. Uh, and I think you, you said in that piece that you're a bit surprised uh, how how common is that to happen for things to be kept over? Oh, we, um, we kept different... a lot. We kept a lot okay. from the previous admin. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that stuff is, um, yeah, pretty. It's mostly bipartisan. Then I would I I'd say it's sort of pre it's pre partisan, um, like enabling the government to use cloud based email, right? And again, you're making a bunch of assumptions there, like cloud-based email is probably more secure than having a bunch of servers um, that you're maintaining or this, you know, this, that, or the other. You could like go through the debate, but the debate's pretty much settled that it's probably better for most cases for people to use cloud-based technologies. 
because they can be more quickly adapted to the current security environment, right? You can patch globally much more quickly. You can this, you can that. Um, and there are certainly weaknesses, right? You look at APT10, Cloud Hopper, and like you go from a bunch of different targets to one target, and then the bad guys are going to go out and try and hit the one target. So uh, there are certainly trade-offs, and I wouldn't want to say that cloud-based tools are some kind of panacea. But the point is, like as a policy matter, we're trying to get people to adopt what we would call today as best practices. And so like you can say that in a strategy. In fact, we did our previous, our, our predecessors did, our successors did. And I just, I don't think there's like a, I just don't think there's like a partisan hook for that, right? Right, um, that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, there's like a bunch of these things. Now there is some partisan stuff in that document. And there were, I'm sure they would, make the same accusation about us. Like there were partisan, there were partisan aspects in the 2018 national cyber strategy. Uh, But a lot of it is just like, Hey, we're trying to get the federal government to a place where, uh, you know, like a a top notch private company would expect to be uh, three years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That, That makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, I, I'm just really wondering about the internal internal dynamics of the NSC. I also, what's the? I forget now. Um, but what what percentage of the of the NSC again is uh, kind of political appointees? So basically, for the audience, up uh, yeah, it's, a, it's probably stuff that can be appointed by the administration. Yeah, it's sorry, gone. It's probably less than ten percent. So right, yeah, the we go into exhaustive detail here, but the White House budget. And the NSC budget is very small. So the way in which people create large National Security Council staffs is they, quote unquote, hire, but really they detail. That's a word that means to assign or reassign. They detail people whose day jobs is at some other department or agency, like the Department of Defense or the Department of Energy. They detail them over to the White House and they assign them to work on the NSC staff. And so NSC staff's allowed to be, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood, uh, not allowed to be, but the budget that is assigned to the NSC, again, lots of detail here. We're not going to go into it. Um, you know, somewhere around, um, it's in the mid, I'll say it's in the mid double digits. There are a bunch of decisions get that get made around like who is, gets paid off of that budget. And then what remains for policy staffers, it was somewhere for us, it was somewhere around, you know, in the 30s, above or below, et cetera. We could get into details, but, um, and then the NSC staff has fluctuated from between, I want to say at the smallest, it was like eight, might've been under Kennedy. Um, And then the Obama team had like over 400. And at the end, the Trump admin, we had somewhere in the low, low 100 number of people. I don't remember the specific numbers. Um, but uh, but at any given time, it was still somewhere between 20 and 30 politicals, and the rest were coming in from across the various departments and agencies as, you know, rotational staff. Right. And then within, within these kinds of, uh, or, or within this pool of staff 
are there usually like different coalitions? Is there is there a lot of conflict over um, basically how either budget is allocated or what what priorities are pushed um, to the next level? Uh, or is there or or is it much more kind of top down? Is it much more kind of allocative or something in between? Well, the NSC staff, at least in in the current sort of structure that exists, is broken down into what are called directorates like a and there are regional and what we call functional directorates so i led a functional directorate cyber we also colored covered telecom supply chain and crypto oh man <laughs> um and so you know we had um we covered those issues and then the regional directorates um like an indo-pacific directorate that covered those countries, Africa directorate, et cetera. And so that's how things are broken down. And then each one of those directorates are essentially like softly assigned a number of people that they're allowed to have on staff at any given time. And there's some amount of flexibility there. Right. I think yeah, maybe maybe I'll be more. I, I was saving, planning to save this for later in in the conversation, but maybe it would clarify what I'm trying to find out here uh, by going into more specifics around machine learning. So, you know, I, I think that machine learning is going to be a very impactful technology, both for the public, um, economically, and also for the military, but. Um, you know, it's a very it's a very common result that I mean, I, I think you've talked about this even in this conversation that government adoption really lags industry adoption, and you know, hopefully, hopefully that's uh, less so the case this time. So, yeah, so so there are multiple uh, areas. I might be wrong about this, but that I think that the NSC might touch when it comes to machine learning. Uh, one is kind of export controls, China strategy. Uh, one is sort of modernization, how legible, uh, essentially military records or, or, you know, security records, uh, government records are to existing machine learning algorithms or future machine learning algorithms. And another is kind of strategic investment in machine learning, right? Um, first of all, was there any existing interest, um, on any of these areas back then? That's that's kind of where I should start, I think. Uh, I'm not yeah. hearing anything. Yeah, this was of interest to me and my team. We were paying attention to it. I, I hope the new team has continued that attention on various aspects of what you're talking about. I'm also, though, not going to talk about specifics um, just because uh, there are various things, but there's this sort of soft omerta around... Um, you know, what you talk about in terms of, you know, when you serve at the White House. So I'm not going to go into the specifics of policies that, you know, were debated, but maybe things never happened. But the point is, um, yeah, the, the cyber director was thinking a lot about these types of things. And uh, like I said, I, I hope the next team has carried that on. Right. Um, right. So... I don't know. Can I just ask, like, how much how much of an interest there was in general? You know, what was the vibe? I don't know. We we can we can get off this topic entirely if you want. Yeah. Um, 
you know, so I was a senior director, meaning like I was in charge of an office. I was in charge of the cyber office and I had directors underneath me. And I can tell you that there were several directors that were paying attention to problems that had a machine learning flavor to them. I'm not going to go into details around it. Um, right. But look, this comes down to personalities, right? Like at the end of the day, you need people that are willing to run policy processes that when you're talking about things like ML can get somewhat technical. And so you need people that are conversant in those technologies in order to run competent policy making processes around them. So insofar as these things may have had attention in the past and I hope have attention in the future, it's going to depend on the human beings that are in those offices and what they're able to understand about what's going on with the state of the technology and then what they're able to sort of push throughout the, you know, the world. Right, right. This is, yeah, this is very important going back to the, going back to the kind of talent drought we were talking about before. Right. So, so what are the kind of soft skills that you need to like, like, let's say you're someone, let's say you're an engineer who has, you know, some machine learning experience can definitely read the papers, um, maybe even has some understanding of the potential threats. Uh, what, what kind of soft skills do you need to succeed both at lower levels and eventually at the NSC? So the first thing is you need to be able to communicate. You need to be able to communicate complex topics. You need to be able to communicate complex topics verbally and then also uh, through the written word. Memos that go to the president are usually about half a page of text. Maybe you can get a page of text if you're really lucky. Memos that go to the cabinet are at most three pages maybe four max. And so you need to be able to boil things down to their essence. So I think that's probably the biggest challenge for most people is, especially if they're technically minded, these topics are very complicated. You and I both know that. You probably know that much more than I do. But unless you can explain them to people, um, it's really not much you can do. Remember, at the end of the day, the people that you need to convince to do something are the cabinet. Those are cabinet secretaries, like the secretary of agriculture or the secretary of state or the president of the United States and ideally both. And the point is those folks rarely have technical backgrounds. They're not, many of them are not engineers. Some are. Um, but even so, like what types of engineers are there? And, and so the point is you have to be able to communicate. If you're an engineer, you, I would say, start writing, start write about anything, anything that you like. Um, you know, if you, if you like a TV show, if you like a program, certain programming language, if you like a game, just start writing about it, write publicly. And when you can compress really complicated concepts down into like a few sentences, first of all, I just think it's going to be a benefit to your life overall. Um, but th that's probably the base skill set that you need. 
to be able to work in one of these jobs. Right. That that's you know that's certainly something that I've uh, that I've struggled with. Um, just, just writing things in a straightforward, understandable way. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that, that that's that's for sure. Um, it's hard. Just saying it's hard. Sorry, go on. I'll, I'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> like there. There were times when it would take us a year to get a memo. In the right place. I have this saying and I've said it before. It's in my little Steinman rules blog. Twitter thread or whatever. Very few things in the world take more than 15 minutes. The question is, who's 15 minutes? Obviously, there's a whole bunch of like counterexamples to this, but I can tell you that there are a lot of examples of where this is true. And I can tell you that, you know, one page memo to the right person that captures the relevant issues crisply that gives them a clear decision and the potential outcomes delivered to that person. They read it in 60 seconds and then five to 10 minutes of back and forth. Like some of the biggest decisions in the world happen that way. And so you have to reverse engineer what it takes to be in those types of environments. And communication is the num- is probably one of the most critical skills. And look, written and spoken communication, right? You have to be able to think on your feet to some degree or at least have the ability to sort of memorize all the all the conversational pathways that you might come in contact with and then and then be able to present those at the right time. Right. So we're in this yeah. Right. So so do you have any Right. So memorize the conversational pathways, understand, you know, what it's like to be in that situation. I guess a lot of it does go back to Boyd. Right. Right. I can see why you called him, I think, like the essential American uh, philosopher. Right. Yeah. I think it's like Sun Tzu, Clausewitz, Boyd, you know, there's others, but luminaries of strategic thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I'd call him one of the preeminent American philosophers of power. Right. Do you have, I mean, I think this is something that's especially worth going deep on, right? Do you, do you have more tips for, uh, for memo writing, for really communicating, especially in, you know, a kind of high stakes context? Yeah, I think the final, often the final paragraph that gets communicated in most memos really should be the paragraph that's, or the sentence that's directly up front. I think a lot of people find themselves contending with fear when they're writing. And so they feel like they have to pre-justify things. They feel Mm. like they have to, um, you know, uh, exhaustively describe. They need the disclaimers, you know? Yeah. Don't do it. Just put it right up front. You know, the United States should X. You should X. I had this problem even writing the ad copy, as we'd call it, for the Galvanic, you know, press release. I worked on that memo for two months, three months. It's on the Galvanic website. 
And um, if I'd been at the White House, I probably would have worked on it for another month before it was ready. And it's two pages. It's not tight. I can tell you that. I'm looking at it right now. Maybe it's like 600 words, 500 words. This was a White House memo. I'd probably get half that space and would have cut a lot. Um, I'm just looking at it right now. Yeah, would have, would have done a lot different. Right. So, okay, let's. <laughs> I don't know. Do, do you have do you have many more of these? Do you have uh, a lot in the chamber for this question? Yeah, I mean, I, we could go. Th- I mean, we could go through this galvanic memo. Here's, I mean, it's a perfect example of like of of these things, right? Like, oh, this would be great. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's break this down, and I'll tell you why this is a terrible memo at the National Security Council, and I'll tell you how you'd re- how you'd rewrite it. Galvanic, the cybersecurity solution for protecting industrial infrastructure against cyber attacks today announced its $10 million seed round. Major investors include Mac Venture Capital, Founders Fund, Village Global, Countdown Capital, Hanover Technology Investment Management, Shrug Capital, 8090 Industries, and over 25 angel investors specializing in cybersecurity, manufacturing, finance, and defense. Okay. So um, I would probably wordsmith this first sentence. And you, by the way, for folks reading this or listening to this at home, you can follow along by just going to Galvanic, G-A-L-V-A-N-I-C-K.com. And then on the top menu bar, just click news. It's the only thing we have there. So you can like have this in front of you as we're reading it through. So I probably would have wordsmithed the first sentence a little bit more. And again, so I'm not saying that this isn't a good memo for a startup. It's I think it's a great memo for a startup. What I'm saying is if this were a memo to the president of the United States, what would you have done differently? What would I have done differently? And I have, I've written numerous memos to the president of the United States and hundreds to the national security advisor and the cabinet. So I'm just running you through like, what does it actually look like to write at that level? Again, for a startup, it's a great memo. Okay. I would have wordsmithed the first sentence around the $10 million seed round. This sentence I would have absolutely crushed. Major investors include. You, you just say, and again, the words carry meaning in the White House backed by the greatest investors in the world, period. So just think about that. This sentence is maybe 25 words, 30 words, major investors include, blah, 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 Founders Fund, Countdown Capital, et cetera. Backed by the greatest investors in the world, seven, is that seven words, eight words? Boom, right? And if you're literally telling the president of the United States like you use the words as intended. Next, Galvanic plans to use the capital to make, again, it's it's a little soft, uh, Galvanic will or Galvanic builds or uh, yeah, something like that. You'd, you'd crush this down even more. And I think all told, I'd eyeball this here on the website, it shows up as what, like eight, nine lines. I think you'd crush this thing down into like, three or four lines max for that first for that first paragraph if you're writing for the president of the United States. And then you'd 
probably combine it with the second paragraph, which reads, Galvanic was built by a team of industry veterans, including co-founder Joshua Steinman, the ex-military former senior director for cyber on the National Security Council, who architected the 2018 National Cyber Strategy, as well as co-founders Brandon Park, who helped stand up Amazon's global industrial cybersecurity program, and Felix Plazinski, a former trader, economist, and White House staffer. The engineering team at Galvanic comes from Amazon, Google, Uber, and Bechtel, and has deep experience securing industrial systems across cyber attacks. So again, if you're writing that for the president of the United States, again, I think it's a great memo for a startup, but if you're writing, it's, this company is built by some of the premier experts in industrial cybersecurity from the fields of policy, technology, and finance. It's one sentence. Again, you're saying it to the president. It's been fact-checked 20 ways to Sunday. If he wants to know who are these people, you need to be prepared to answer and rattle all that off or have it you know, in a backup detail binder. But that paragraph to the president, one sentence. Now, when you're writing it to a bunch of investors or to the press, you have to lay it out because there's no back and forth that's going to happen. But boom, you compress that thing down into a single sentence. Okay, next. Over the past 30 years, industrial enterprises have replaced manually operated equipment with computer operated equipment, trading increased efficiency for unknown and potentially catastrophic downside risk. These industrial systems are now under increasing frequently, uh, increasingly frequent cyber attacks, which can compromise drug manufacturing, turn off safety systems at oil refiners, or spoil millions of pounds of meat, costing billions of dollars in just the past five years. Again, this gets compressed down into like one sentence. This is a systemic problem that has confronted nearly every industry and has cost the United States and the world billions of dollars in the past five years. One sentence, maybe a line and a half, boom. Again, if the president asks you what industries have been affected, you respond. But the point is that when you're operating at that level, and I think probably at the highest corporate levels, these things you know, work similarly. Like when you're talking to the CEO or the president, when you're saying something, there's two options. One, it's true. Two, it's a lie, right? And you have to assume if you're getting to that point, it's true. If it's not true, then you should be fired. Um, and then if it, if it is true, either you have to go back and say, oh, let me get you the details on that, or you need to be able to respond at the moment and explain. So again, one paragraph, boom, one sentence. The next paragraph is quotes. It's a quote from me. Cyber attacks against industrial systems are on the rise, and they not only affect a firm's bottom line, but can pose physical hazard to facilities and employees, said Joshua Steinman, CEO and co-founder of Galvanic. Hiring industrial cybersecurity specialists is hard. The Galvanic platform was built with industrial systems in mind and enables your existing team to watch over these critical environments while preserving uptime and reliability. So probably wouldn't have that in a memo to the president. And in fact, it is duplicative of the paragraph above, right? It exists in this startup memo to the press and the public because, you know, you're, you're, you're embellishing it, but in the memo to the president, you don't need it. Right. And they want quotes. They want, yeah. Yeah. It's just like, exactly. I'm here. I'm the senior right, director right. for cyber. <laughs> Like I am the senior most policymaker on this topic for the United States government. I'm sitting in the Oval Office. If you have questions, you can ask. And it is my job to either know or tell you that I will get you the facts within the hour 
Um, and if I've lied to you to resign, <laughs> uh, we, we can keep going on this. Do you want to keep going? Right. Yeah. It, it is just fascinating. It is. Yeah. Just hearing, just hearing this, I think really, I, I do think it sheds a lot of light. So, so if you want to, I, I'm definitely very happy to keep going. Uh, I think, I think we've gotten, it. I think the point here is that, yeah. is that words have meaning. I think a lot of people have forgotten that. And so you can write in a way that uses the words as intended. Most people don't. And so when you're right. writing at the highest level, or even when you're writing it at, in top form, you can read the greatest authors in the Western canon are very good at this. They use one word where others would use 10. He shuddered. Most people would say, you know, he, f- he froze where he was, uh, you know, gripped by fear and this, that, or the other. He shuddered, you know? Um, right. And, and you, you tighten things up and it communicates and it forces people to pay attention. Yeah, I do think. I know the the big question is is why people don't write like this more often, right? Is it, you know, is it a kind of, you know, once again, conflict or mistake, right? Is it just a hard thing to do? Is it just very unnatural? Just takes a lot of thought and refinement. Is it, you know, are there incentives against that? Is this something that you know the culture is pushing against, or a mix of both? Or something else entirely. Yeah, I'm sure it's all of those things. And and it's also fear. Right. right. People feel like they have to justify their writing. They think the length matters. You know, I need to write a lot. <laughs> right. I need to need to over explain things. They use adverbs. Yeah, you see this a lot in like, yeah, you see Maybe less so in advertising, just because you know it's still you know ads still charged by the you know charged by the second. This but, is one of the great things about Twitter, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It forces brevity. Right. It's one of the great you things know. about memes. That's why memes are amazing. Right. Put one up. Put one up. Put one up the other day. Uh, I put them up every day, and the point is, instantly compressed information. Boom. Right. So so this is a topic I think maybe you'll find interesting. Uh the online rights or like you know it's 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 not so online anymore, you know. You have American Moments, uh you know, Mutual Friends or Sharma, um you know, finding finding a pipeline from basically like enthusiastic young people to, you know, actually getting hands-on experience in DC. Right, you know, you know there, there's our plug for American moments. You know, uh, not not sponsored. Uh, maybe in the future. We you love know. you, Rob. Uh, Keep doing yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. So, so like, there is this strange phenomenon, and I think you're, you know, you're kind of adjacent to it. You're kind of at least familiar with it, of very motivated young people. You know, like vaguely, vaguely right wing, but you know with you know pretty um di- rapidly diverging 
ideologies or, or kind of worldviews. I prefer to call them reality focused. Right, right. Yeah, I've seen a few people uh, look at that. So what do you think of this movement? What do you think it's... Uh, do, do you think, first of all, like maybe this is a good hook into it. Do you think they have any... You know, do you, do you think what So Rob's doing is going to work? Do you think what, you know, like Claremont is doing, for example, do you think this is like a real, like real recruiting mechanism? I don't know what the alternatives are. I am always in favor of action over inaction. I think that at the end of the day, people win conflicts. And so we need to be giving people the opportunity to learn and grow. And I think that all of these efforts are to the good. Um, I'm sure there are other ones that we're unfamiliar with that are just as good. But I think pulling people together, giving them an informal network, allowing them to build trust, hopefully build some amount of technical competence in whatever area it is that they're focused on. I think all these things are excellent. I think um, the, the communist aspect uh, does this very well. They've got patrons across any number of sectors that enable people to learn or at least, you know, put bread on the table and pay for a roof over their head while furthering their ideological goals. Really nothing like that exists on the right. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think all these things are to the good. Right. So, um, right. So Curtis, Curtis Jarvin, um, very spicy online writer wrote this, wrote this article called, uh, I think acorns for the culture war, right? He, he talks about these scenes as a kind of long-term recruiting tool as kind of like the most important thing that donors could be doing right now Yeah, uh, is building up these scenes, building up these infor- informal networks. Uh, where, where do you think that ranks on the, on the list of priorities? I'd call it a temporal pincer movement. You know, you need, you need folks that are just getting after it and doing things. And then they're going to need the next generation in five to 10 years. And so you need to do both. You need to be doing other things as well. Some of which I'm happy to talk about, others which I will not, but right. I think all this stuff is important. Yeah. So a last kind of like sub sub thread that I want to look at is um, I'm, I'm not sure if you've uh, I, I'm not sure if you've heard this or if you've read this uh, American Affairs column by Jacob Siegel, a data uh, data driven defeat. Uh, he basically talks about his time uh, in Afghanistan, I think. Uh, and his thesis is essentially that, you know, you have this, these ever uh, ever more complex technologies stuff like machine learning, data science, analytics. And his experience in Afghanistan, he talks about this in this column, was basically that this was a complicated way to justify, you know, ignoring human decisions. That you had human decisions about war, you know, 
like you said, very, you want a very brief purpose of what are we fighting this war for? And in his experience, that never happened. There was just, you know, ever-changing miasma of justifications, all kind of supported by these like vague metrics that were quantifying things that weren't central to the core human decisions. And I guess to, to sum it all up, it's the question, like, can essentially advanced technologies lead us to cloud our judgment, right? I think it's a great point. I, I don't know who that person is. I have not read the column. Um, I'm only vaguely aware of the, the, uh, oh, but I don't offend anyone, but I, what, what was the institution that it was published with? Uh, Jacob Siegel, American Affairs. Yeah. I, I think I've heard of it, but I, I don't, honestly, I don't really pay attention to the, the, the literature quote unquote. Um, but sounds like, sounds like a smart guy. And I would just point back to this amazing essay written by this guy named Yevgeny Morozov. He's a, he's a leftist, but he's an interesting, compelling writer. The article is called The Planning Machine. He wrote it in October of 2014. And it, it tells this story of how the Chileans, Allende specifically, tried to create a room where they would control Chile's, Chile's economy from like a chair <laughs> and how oh my. and how this was the outgrowth of these old communist informatics philosophies over how data could be used to control complex systems of systems and i point people to this article a lot because i think we're sort of in this recursive loop where people think, oh, it's just around the corner where, you know, human judgment and human action will be superseded by digital systems that will be able to anticipate and advance or mitigate or what have you. And, you know, I agree with you. I mean, I, I didn't serve in Afghanistan. I did two tours in Iraq. Um, one very operational, we were out you know, doing things. And then the other very strategic. Um, I, I was one of the last people to stay in the country and stayed after like the end of the war, 11 and 12. Um, I was at, out of, out of the green zone as literally we were pulling, you know, tens of thousands of troops out frantic mad dash for Kuwait, um, in the closing hours of 2011. So, um, yeah, I think not trusting your people, not creating an environment where the desired strategic outcomes are very clear to everyone, where at every echelon of command, their task and responsibility is, a, is, is known. Um, these are the challenges of modern war. And I think many of the philosophical underpinnings of why we fail are resident in this article. And maybe in the article that you're referring to, it certainly sounds like it, but I can't speak for that, for that fellow or his, or his piece. But it all. Right. Goes, I do think a lot of the themes are similar. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, go on. Um, my only point is just that, 
people don't want to look at what's happening and they use these tools, digital tools, uh, physical tools, emotional tools, intellectual tools to avoid paying attention to reality. And reality is tough. It doesn't always reflect what we want. It rarely reflects what we want, but it exists and you have to contend with it. And I think this is the difference in between the modern left and the modern right, which is that the modern left seeks to create a world where words shape reality or create reality. And I think those efforts are born of nihilism. Words are not reality and never will be. And the desire to believe that they can be is rooted in a desire to negate the real. And I just think that at its best, the right exists based on observations of human nature and reality and, and nature itself and an understanding of, of how those things interact. Um, and I just, I just see and I've experienced this in numerous places um, where many of these types of strategic failures are because at some level people don't want to see what is actually happening. Right. I mean, you said this is a difference between left and right, but I do think, you know, like a lot of people who would call themselves right, who maybe would be, um, you know, even people who would, who are listening to this podcast, actually, like I, I see this in myself a lot too, right? Delegating too much to words, delegating too much to framing, not looking close enough at reality. This is a kind of, you know, like self, self-conflict thing, right? It's, it's not just about, you know, how, the way you write, although I'm sure, you know, there's, there's certainly a lot of room for improvement for me, for most people, I'm sure. But like, right. I think like at, seeing reality in this way is kind of like a very difficult thing to actually do, right? Like that's, like, like how do you, how, how do you live in a way where you're kind of incrementally more and more looking to do that, looking to actually look at what's in front of you instead of kind of making up excuses? Brian, I think it's one of the hardest things to do in the world. And I wrestle with it every day. And I think that at its, at their point of germination, many of the things that we look to as tools to make our lives better are at their nature actually meant to overcome this, this gap in between the perceived or, and the received, right? So like reality and then what we think of it. Meditation. You know, I think meditation is one of these things that is at a level of abstraction, at an esoteric level, m built to force the human to contend with the real. Um, I think that you can go back to Aristotle and what he said about excellence being the things that we do as a, re as a reflection of this. Lots of philosophy contends with it. And so I contend with it, right? I'm some, I'm some kid who runs some company 
and you know, used to be some senior bureaucrat in the United States government, or you know, and a junior military officer before that. And so, you know, to me, how I do this is I try and wake up every day and and you know, just just focus on it and try and do it better, try and do it better every day. Uh, I think it's it's very important to take take that to heart. You know, like a lot of love podcast episodes I do, like they're very informative, but they're not really, you know, changing my orientation to how I, you know, look at the world. I think this one, you know, th- I think I said this a while ago about the Sam O'Brien episode, but I think like this, this episode is definitely going to be one that I spend a lot of time revisiting. Um, Here to help. <laughs> I need the help, right? Like I said, I'm not, I'm not right. There's no perfection that I come to this podcast to present. I'm telling you, I wrestle with this. It's part of the reason why I tweet what I tweet every morning. You got to focus the mind on what it takes and not ignore the things that are disconcerting or troublesome. You just got to handle them head on. And sometimes I put things off. Sometimes, every, you know, People make mistakes. I make mistakes. Sometimes you don't do the right thing. And you just have to come back every day and say, I must, I must pay attention. I must work to do the thing that I say I want to do. I must not ignore. Right, right. So I have a, and making this making this transition is a little bit difficult, but I have, you know, one more thing on the docket, which is kind of your uh, your personal forecast, let's say, of uh, the impact of machine learning of possible cybersecurity threats. That's an area that I'm very interested in. So, so like you, you know, blank out all of the the NSC stuff. You don't have to talk about any of that. Yeah, just in terms of. I'm happy. I'm happy to. Yeah, I, I get it. Look, I'll tell you this much. I remember when Siri came out. How many years ago was that? Like 12 years ago? Oh, man. Really? Yeah. I, I think you're right, but it's something like that. that. It's like 10, 10 years ago. And I went and I bought, was it Nuance Communications? Uh, I don't remember. At this yeah, I, was yeah. New, I think nuance. Yeah. October fourth, twenty eleven. Oh my goodness! Yeah, you're right on. Right on the dot. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. In Twelve years. Oh man. I remember when Siri came out, and I went out and bought Nuance Communication stock. Um, I was like, oh, "This thing's going to be amazing." And then, man, if one of your listeners can dredge this up, there is a crazy cool video of. The I think it was a DARPA project, or it may have been an Air Force Research Labs project, because Siri came out of it, and mm. they had this sick video that was like they're inside a talk tactical operations center, and the dude's like talking to the machine, and he's like, "Yeah, target the bad guys," <laughs> and like you know the reticle falls down on the on the you know escaping insurgent or whatever, launch the missile, whatever it is. Uh, cool video. 
Um, I'm sure it was a hit at uh, whatever presentation day that happened. And I remember for years, you know, waiting for that to become a reality. And here we are again. Mm. Um, and I don't want to represent myself as some like tech OG person. You know, I'm, I'm under 40, <laughs> just like most of your, most of your listeners. Um, but I just feel like I've seen these shows before. Like, you know, I play around with, with the open AI products a lot. Um, and they leave a lot to be desired. I know a lot of people are super impressed. They have reason to be, but it's like, you know, when your dog plays fetch for the first time, it's like, wow, it's pretty amazing. Right. But it's not like go to the store and buy me a gallon of milk and make sure to get the raw milk and not the regular milk and let's get full fat. And here's, you know, cash, don't pay with your credit card and get paper bags and not plastic. And it comes, you know, the dog's not going to do that. Right. <laughs> so I just feel like we're a long way. I, I, I believe we are a long way away from what people think is going to happen. Um, and I just think that like, it, again, it's the psyop. It's the self psyop. Mm. It's like, oh my God, it's all going to happen and I'm going to be useless. The fuck you are. No way. I'm sorry. <laughs> like it just, it's not, it has never been true in the past. Yes. That's, you know, a fallacy that just because it hasn't been true in the past, it may not be, you know, might be true in the future. Like I get it, but like we are not, I do not believe we are there. I do not believe we are close. I think that these tools absolutely are going to augment human skill, but there's still, you know, the vast majority of things require human agency and directive. And so in terms of the impact on cybersecurity, I think there may be some interesting impacts on research. Um, there's a there's a famous Windows researcher. I don't think I'm you know, no clearance or anything like that. Um, and this guy's been reading Windows source code printed off for three decades, right? And and is one of the most prolific researchers out there. And so the ability to retain and recognize patterns, which he obviously has um, a great deal of, I think, yeah, there are possibilities for researchers to use some of these things to find patterns. I'm sure there's opportunity to do basic and repeatable tasks. But um, in terms of like an all-seeing hacking machine, I, I, I don't see it. I could be wrong, right? I am not an AI researcher. I have friends or acquaintances perhaps that are working on interesting things in this space. Um, but I still think reality is going to require human beings. And uh, I'd, I'd bet a lot that I'm going to be right. Yeah, I'm pretty skeptical of the kind of maximalist case of, you know, it's just going to do everything for us. I'm I'm actually very skeptical of that. And it feeds, but I do think it will be integrated their, in a lot of... It feeds their policy on. desires. Oh? Yeah. People say that this thing's going to be all powerful, that it's going to be this, that it's going to be that. It's the next nuclear weapons. Means that you need a regime to control it, like nuclear weapons. Means that, and you just pull that thread, 
And the people that are saying this stuff have these types of, either to their knowledge or not, they have an inborn philosophical perspective, right? That creates architectural policy outcomes. And I think that those outcomes are beneficial to their benefactors or to their ideology, regardless of whether or not the technology is as mature as they assess it is. Right. I, I do think that, you know, I do think that there will be, you know, plethora of new um, security risks, though. Like, like, are you familiar with any of the prompt injection stuff? Yeah, I mean, I follow a lot of that stuff. Yeah. I think those guys are, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> and I, I love all that stuff. Um, I see it. Uh, yeah, I've, I have friends that are kind of prompt injector hacker types, and they're always coming up with stuff. Did you see the one with the flags? Oh, I, I'm not sure what you mean by this. People are you because the flags must in the database actually represent as digraphs or trigraphs. So, like the France flag is FR, and so like if you wanted to, if you wanted to direct something, I can't remember which platform this was on, um, but they were spelling out words using flags. Oh, that's great! And yeah. it got around the the limiters. That that's that's amazing, right? Yeah. yeah. So so you see these, you know, you see these platforms or you see these uh, exploits all of the time. It's yeah, it's amazing. It's it's a brand new world. But you know, like I'm sure there's going to be some company that opens some them themselves up to some vulnerability with this. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, like I mean, where do you think that lies in the kind of scope of of uh of priorities right like let's say you know fing fingers crossed you're uh you're uh nsc director of cyber again you know uh come 2025 what is you know like where where in your list of priorities is that is that uh i would is, trade i would trade you five years of ai policy if if i could snap my fingers and make sure that every critical database in the country was updated and patched and their users were using multi-factor authentication to the best current standard of of industry. I'd trade it all. Okay. So a low hanging fruit. Right, I think that makes low sense. hanging fruit. Like the basics are the most important things today. I'd trade it all for 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 intelligently segmented networks. You know, again, I just, I, it's like, we need a new Gartner hype cycle for AI where like there's the, where there's the first hump, but like seven times. And right. like maybe we're on the fourth. Okay. Yeah. That that's, that that's an understandable perspective. Uh, yeah, this has been, this has been great. This has been just I mean, I mean, I, I do think you really kind of live your advice, right? This has been an incredibly dense conversation. I think you, you've answered, you know, my two pages of prep. Uh, this has been, this has been wonderful. Uh, right, so the last question of the show, uh, always the last question of the show, uh, is uh, what is one thing in the world that we haven't talked about yet? Because I'm, I'm sure we've talked about things 
Uh, that one thing in the world does too much chaos, and one thing of the, that needs more order, and one thing in the world does too much order and needs more chaos. That's a great question. Hmm. Architecture has too much chaos and needs order. I'm a big believer in classical forms, classical architecture, uh, classical aesthetic senses of beauty, of proportion. I look at modern architecture and I, th- I think it's meant to terrorize. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and to make people, you know, it, it is harassment. The architecture is harassment of the human. And uh, I, I just think that these natural forms and proportions, um, there's an amazing Twitter personality called Wrath of Non, G-N-O-N, Wrath of Non. And he's just got a, an amazing feed, and I encourage you all to follow him, uh, that covers a lot of this stuff. So that's something that, that needs more order. You know, God, you look at these like Frank Gehry buildings and they're, and, and he's like the least, right? There's some, or Zaha Hadib and her architectural firm, like some of that stuff has some amount of natural order, but a lot of it, a lot of it is just chaos. Right. It's interesting. I think I've heard someone give a very similar answer, but in the opposite direction, right? Like, the, like they say something very similar, but just, you know, like the, the buildings nowadays are too focused on efficiency. They need more chaos. You know, but I think yeah, but it's very it's reasonable. You know, they, they're they're lacking in the they're lacking in the classical order, as you say. I mean, walk around the Stanford campus, and it has right, right. That's particularly atrocious. Yeah, like university campuses. Well, particularly well, the classical buildings there are beautiful, and they're designed like that 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 central quad with those beautiful. Um, I forgot what they're called, the exposed hallways with the columns on the outside. They provide shade, et cetera. But then, but then, yeah, you go into some of the modern buildings on that campus and it's just like a massive hall, you know, 200 meters by 50 meters wide or something like that or yards, you know, sorry, bleep out that I use the metric system. So embarrassing. <laughs> um, whatever, keep it. Uh Metric system sucks, but uh, yeah, two hundred feet by fifty feet wide of just like empty space and one desk in it. This is like the new Hoover Building. I walked in there. I have a friend who's who's there um, on like a postdoc or something. We walked in and it was just like this space makes no sense, right? Like you could have accomplished this in like twenty square feet, and instead it's this like hollow, empty thing uh, with glass that heats up. And heats up the courtyard. Terrible. Um, reflective, perhaps, in more ways than one. Right. <laughs> uh, okay, so that's yeah. something that has chaos that needs more order. Something that has order that needs more chaos. Uh, yeah, people's assessment of the current way of things. I think that most people today have been trained to believe that the reality that exists is as it should be and as it always has been. And reading the classics, I'm very slowly making my way 
through Plutarch's lives right now and reading about how ancient city-states used to organize themselves, how ancient leaders used to behave and were expected to behave or not expected to behave, but how they did behave. I think that the conformity, the oppressive expectations of normalcy are some of the greatest challenges that we face today. And I, it takes people who can observe reality and act and take and do in order to just break us out of this, this mind prison of plotting expectation. Yes, there will be a great uh, reorganization of all things. Thanks for thanks for being on the show, uh, Josh. Thanks, Brian. This was great. Thanks for having me. And for folks that want to follow me, check me out on Twitter. It's uh, at Joshua Steinman. Uh, at me. I don't really do the DMs that much, but uh, at me. Brian and I are always going back and forth on there. Um, and then, uh, yeah, follow the company if you want. At Galvanic Co., G-A-L-V-A-N-I-C-K-C-O. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and you'll be able to, for the audience, you'll be able to find all of those in the description as well. Uh, As well as uh, Josh's amazing Substack, which I also recommend. Amazing. All right, man. Thanks for having me. This is great. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Josh Steinman. I hope you enjoyed it. Just like up top, if you did enjoy it, the best way to help the show is to let a friend know, either in person or online. You can also help the show by giving us a five-star review on any podcast app, leaving a comment, suggesting future guests. I look through all of the guest suggestions, and many of them end up coming on the podcast. And leaving any future feedback as well. You can also subscribe to the From the New World newsletter, which you can see linked below. And you can subscribe to that newsletter for free for most of the articles and also for a paid version if you want to help support the show. And of course, stay subscribed if you want another great episode next Monday. See you then.